You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we're going to be continuing our discussion on the history of harvest management here in North America, and we're sort of entering the final phase of this discussion for this current season of the Ducks Unlimited podcast. I'm very happy on this episode to welcome in a guest that's going to help us talk about one of the things that's already been introduced, adaptive harvest management. We had a four-part discussion with Dr. Jim Nichols on sort of the history, emergence of adaptive harvest management and the implementation of it. But the guest that's joining us today is going to take us sort of into modern times over the past 25 or so years of adaptive harvest management and help us understand where we are today and maybe give us a look into the future on where we're going with adaptive harvest management and other aspects of waterfowl harvest. Our guest today is Dr. Scott Boomer, wildlife biologist with the Branch of Assessment and Decision Support for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services Division of Migratory Bird Management. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here today. We're going to start out with you giving our listeners, giving us a brief history of your personal and professional bio. So let's just get started with that, Scott, if you don't mind. I'm originally from upstate New York. I grew up in a small town right on Lake Ontario. I then was able to go to university at Cornell University um, and was fortunate enough to continue there for my graduate studies. I, uh, I got a MS and a PhD from that same institution. And then I did one year's worth of postdoc work um, actually in fisheries, and then I was fortunate enough to get this current position that I'm in with the Fish and Wildlife Service. As you, as you said, I'm a wildlife biologist with the branch of assessment and decision support within the Division of Migratory Bird Management. 
within the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, I was hired primarily to provide technical support for the services adaptive harvest management program. And currently I coordinate the AHM program and serve as the coordinator of the harvest management working group. Scott, I was mentioning here offline before we started recording that your title of wildlife biologist is very unassuming relative to the duties that I know that you're responsible for. Uh, so I just want want to point that out that, and I think people will see as we get through this conversation, the level of, of intellect that you bring to, uh, to harvest management is vastly impressive. And I thank you for taking the time out of your, your busy schedule to, uh, to share some of this with us. And, and it is a treat to be able to piece together some of these different guests relative to this topic. Uh, we've just completed a, a series with Dr. Jim Dubofsky talking about the point system. And now we're going to continue with you. And I, and I know all of these are your colleagues, so it's kind of neat in that regard as well. Uh, so as I mentioned, you know, Jim Jim, uh, Jim Nichols, we have two Jims here that I'm talking about, I have to realize that. <laughs> Jim Nichols provided us with an extensive history on adaptive harvest management. And so now I want to just transition to, um, to a more modern perspective, and that's where you come in. And I guess just picking up from where Jim Nichols left off and his reflection on experiences with adaptive harvest management, I want to get yours. After 25 years of implementation of, uh, of adaptive harvest management, what do you, how do you view what we have learned uh, about AHM itself, uh, the decision process involved in it, duck populations, duck hunters? I mean, just big picture. What's your view and reflection on adaptive harvest management and how it has helped us as a harvest management community? Sure. Um, well, to just reconnect with the, the transition of um, Jim Nichols' podcast, I I was fortunate enough to um, listen to those this week, and he did a great job of covering the history and the really the evolution of the adaptive harvest management approach that we use today. I've been lucky to work with Jim and folks like Ken Williams and Fred Johnson, who really were um, innovators in developing uh, the waterfall harvest management um, approach and the utilizing you know the concepts of adaptive management. Um, it, and so, you know, like you mentioned, we've been operational for 25 years now. Um, and in general, over this time frame, we've been very fortunate to experience good habitat conditions. I think Jim mentioned this in the previous podcast. And in general, most waterfowl populations are doing very well. Um, in terms of what we've learned formally through the HM process, you know, Jim had talked about um, the um, evolution of model weights and how we have some support for the additive har harvest mortality hypothesis and really strong support for the weak density dependent hypothesis. Um, throughout that framework, we've been liberal. Um, and in the face of 20 plus years of liberal regulations, harvest rates on adult male mallards have averaged about 10%, which is a little bit surprising given that I think the the initial projections for what we'd achieve with liberal seasons was a rate around 12 to 15%. So that was something um, that's interesting. And I think more generally, you know, the, the waterfall harvest managed community has really embraced the principles of AHM and, and that's resulted in a, a lot less contentiousness in our decision-making. Um, we don't really experience the same um, types of arguments at the various regulatory meetings that we did in the past. And, and I think I, that's attributed to this buy-in to this approach that we're using to inform regulatory decisions. Scott, you mentioned that the 
The average harvest rate for adult male mallards is somewhere around 10%. I might be catching you off guard with this question, but it popped in my head. Do you know offhand, and if you don't, that's fine. I realize this is going to be a pretty specific question. Do you know offhand if we have seen any trend in that harvest rate through time? Uh, within the last 10 or 15 years, we haven't. It's been hovering right around 10%. Um, in, in, in fact, I just redid an assessment um, to actually estimate reporting rates over time, that same time frame. And in order to estimate those reporting rates, um, we have to estimate harvest rates as well. And so they're the best estimates. And a lot of that data is based on reward banding data. So it's some of the best we have to estimate harvest rates. And yeah, we have not seen a lot of variation um, over that time frame. Interesting. I just wanted to ask that because it, again, just kind of popped in my head. Let's move on now to talk about objectives. This was a big part of our conversation with Jim Nichols, and he emphasized the importance of having clearly stated objectives before we go forward with any type of decision-making or decision-making process. Where do we stand with current AHM objectives? Are there any uh, are there any efforts to revisit those? Uh, this is a pretty open-ended question here uh, because maybe you could take it a number of different directions. Uh, but where do we stand with AHM objectives, and are those under revision? Is there any thought of that uh, of that occurring, or have they been revised here in recent years? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I can give you an update. Um, so the. The Mid-Continent Mallard AHM framework um, just underwent a complete revision of that decision framework. Uh, it was a, it spanned a couple of years and involved a, a technical working group from both the Mississippi and Central Flyway and, and members of the, um, the harvest managed community. And so, you know, we went through what's called a double loop learning process with, uh, I think Jim mentioned this in a previous podcast, where we step outside of the iterative phase and consider um, other types of issues that might be relevant to, you know, maybe reevaluating the current framework. And it involves reconsidering objectives, the types of regulatory alternatives that we would um, consider in our um, decision-making, the, the models that we use. It was a, it was a complete um, re revamping, if you will, of that framework. And, we spent a lot of time on harvest management objectives. As Jim mentioned, you know, they sort of determine um, really where you go with regards to the modeling framework, but also with regards to the, you know, the, the development of the decision strategy. And um, the original objective for Midcon and Miller at AHM was to maximize long-term cumulative harvest, but that was subject to um, a constraint where we would devalue population size, subsequent population sizes, if they were less than the, we would devalue harvest, I should say, um, if the subsequent population size was expected to be less than the North American Waterfowl Management Plan goal. And um, this was a, a, a conservation type of objective that was formulated in the objective function. And what we've learned um, through the, the double loop process, as well as, you know, during the operational phase is that we would be, if we continue to use that constraint in our objective function, that we would, we may experience situations where we would forego harvest opportunity um, during conditions that weren't conducive to population sizes greater than that goal. 
And so we had a lot of deliberations within the working group. And really, um, the, you know, I think the harvest managed community was reluctant to continue that, to continue to apply that constraint as we revise that framework. And so in, a, in effect, we have removed that constraint from the objective function. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we're removing a conservation level objective because we're maximizing harvest over the long time horizon that necessitates carrying a population through to maximize that harvest. So there's an inherent conservation objective within that harvest management objective. Scott, if I remember some of those discussions and papers and reports related to that correctly, that that constraint, that NAWAMP constraint, basically what you're saying, if I can kind <clears> of <throat> translate this to a, a layperson explanation, is that that constraint might have, in some circumstances, caused us to be more conservative, moved us away from a liberal regulation uh, without much benefit in the long term of, of actually, you know, helping to sustain waterfowl populations, right? In other words, being more liberal during those years when we were getting closer to that NAWAMP goal wouldn't necessarily been detrimental to the population long term and perhaps would not have been uh, justified in pulling back on regulations. Is that is that a fair way of translating that? Yeah, that's accurate. Um, I think you're spot on. And then another part of that discussion also was some debate about, well, what was the intent of the NAWAMP goal anyway, or what What was the thinking behind the role that harvest should play in our achievement of that NAWAMP objective anyway, or the NAWAMP population goal? And I think we we kind of, the, the community settled on harvest is an important part of the overall waterfowl management enterprise, but it we really want to ensure that we're achieving that NAWAMP goal primarily through the provision of, of adequate habitat. And then we need harvest to be kind of commensurate with with, the, with what the population is allowing at any given time. Is that am I right there too? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, that was my it, attempt to translate it. I don't know if I succeeded. <laughs> uh, anyway, I just wanted to take a stab at, at that. So uh, interesting conversation. And so that constraint has been officially removed now. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yep. I want to move on now to any other kind of uh, current changes or changes that may be coming to AHM here in the future. I've spoken with a few other people and they reference maybe some tweaks to what, to how we're dealing with the different model sets. Uh, and we don't have to get too technical here, but just uh, for some information, any other significant uh, adjustments to AHM that might be coming? Yes, um, we we have the additional 25 years of information. So we're going to we're going to use that um, to update, you know, the the relationships in the current models that we use to predict population change for mid-continent mallards. And we're actually going to be using some new analytical methods to take advantage of that information. Um, the baseline um, recruitment relationships and survival models are not really going to change that much. Um, however, the way we estimate them will um, and we're we're hopeful that this new estimation framework really provides a more efficient use of that information um, going forward, per, particularly in the face of some of the the large scale system changes that we are observing or experiencing now. Um, in addition, we've been able to use the information for U.S. ponds in our um, recruitment model. So now we'll be um, predicting recruitment as a function of not just Canadian ponds, but total ponds that we count during the, the May annual survey. 
I didn't realize that, Scott. That's uh, I am learning a lot on this episode. That's good. I hope our listeners are too, because we we spoke with Jim Nichols about that, and this is where the I, I, I'm going to ask you this kind of question as I frame up part of our discussion with Jim Nichols. We talked about this matrix that was an out uh, an output of the well the sto- stochastic dynamic programming the you know the the model and and that matrix that table has two axes one is uh, mallard breeding population size the other at the time was canadian ponds are you is it right to conclude that now that table is going to include total pond count or is this going to be embedded somewhere else is the matrix stay the same it's just some of the modeling changes what are we dealing with here absolutely that that matrix will you know include total ponds now yep okay that was a question that i oftentimes heard people would would look at that table and say, well, why aren't we including U.S. ponds in that? And I think the answer that I heard most often through the years was that, well, we have a longer record for Canadian ponds and and our, our modeling has shown us that that relationship is, does a better job predicting. But I guess now with additional years and maybe different techniques, we're able to include the U.S. ponds in that. So that's, uh, that's exciting to hear. Thank you for... for- you and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Updating us there. Scott, these changes that we're talking about and many others do not happen unilaterally. There, You even mentioned that one of your responsibilities is to, I think you said you're the chair of the Harvest Management Working Group. So I want to talk about that a little bit to let people know, just give them an idea of the, the type of, of technical work that goes goes on or the, and, and the people that are involved in it. Uh, so speak a bit about that, giving a nod to your partners on the Harvest Management Working Group, what it is you're responsible for and kind of how that, that group is structured. Yeah. So, you know, going back to what Jim Nichols described, um, Fred Johnson, who was really the, the champion of the, the AHM program at the time of its inception, recognized that 
it, this endeavor required a working group, which is um, composed of technical representatives from the state fly you know, from the states that are representing the flyway councils, and then um, biologists and other researchers from the Fish and Wildlife Service from across the services migratory bird offices, um, which included the four flyway reps. And Fred recognized that you know this group would have sort of oversight on the technical developments of AHM. Um, and so, you know, currently the Harvest Management Working Group serves as the technical arm for the Flyway Councils and the Federal Service Regulations Committee. Um, they're responsible for the development and implementation of AHM and all of the, the changes and um, um, different um, evolution of the different components of AHM as we practice it today. Um, the working group considers a lot of technical issues regarding modeling and estimation and different forms of decision analyses in support of the regulatory process. Um, the last December, we just had our 32nd meeting. Um, so it's a, it's a long established group. Um, the, the meeting itself is a formal, um, you know, regulated meeting within the regulatory process. And we're able to have, um, representatives from state and federal entities within that through uh, memorandums of understanding within the flyways and the service to meet and deliberate on those issues associated with the federal regulatory process. Um, it sort of serves as the, the kicking off point for the what we call the regulation cycle where we meet and deliberate on any of the pressing issues for the upcoming regulation cycle and, and review um, analyses and results from the previous reg cycle. So it's a, it's a very important group um, to, to meet with and, and has um, a pretty, in, pretty large impact on how we go through the regulatory, regulatory process. Yeah, and the work of that committee is not trivial at all and highly technical work that's conducted um, collectively through that, through different members of the committee at the federal and state level. And uh, I don't know that I've ever attended one of those meetings. I've certainly heard reports uh, about it. And, and so, yeah, just wanted to give people an idea of, of some of the participation that, that occurs there and um, the, that there is this group out there that, that deliberates regularly on many of the technical, technical aspects of waterfowl harvest management. I want to move now to more of a discussion, sort of, I guess you could say the evolution of adaptive harvest management. It was originally constructed around the mid-continent population of mallards, but now we have adaptive harvest management for western mallards, eastern mallards, black ducks, and, and now pintails. I don't know if we have it for any other species. I'll get you to answer that. But also kind of bigger picture, how do we move to those, how do we get to those different applications of AHM at the species or population level? What does that look like? It's not like we just flip a switch and say, oh yeah, well, let's, we're going to do AHM for redheads or we're going to do AHM for ringneck ducks. Are there any other species for which we have AHM frameworks right now? And then kind of how does that, how does the expansion to different species uh, evolve? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, that we do have another um, stock for which we use in an AHM framework, and that's SCOP. Um, we think we implemented that back in 2010 or maybe 2008. But um, the the answer, the, the quick answer, is that as the decisions become uh, more important and um, and in fact result in some some give and take regarding, you know, what's the appropriate direction, 
the, the harvest managed community sort of steps back and say, well, can we use the same framework or the same types of methodology in structuring a decision that we use for Mid-Con and Mallard? So, you know, originally, as you mentioned, um, all four flyways were being informed by the Mid-Con and Mallard AHM framework um, based on the, the breeding population information from the traditional survey area. And that was a useful starting point with the expectation that, um, you know, Mekon and Mallards would serve as a good surrogate for other stocks. Um, but the Pacific Flyway and the Atlantic Flyway were concerned that if the, the prairies went dry, that it might not be appropriate for their regulations to be tied to some of the dynamics that were occurring with the Mid-Continent stock. And as a result, you know, we have since developed formal frameworks for the Atlantic Flyway and Pacific Flyway based on more regional waterfall stocks that are consistent with the birds that they encounter in their flyways. Um, similar things have happened with black ducks where we have ongoing deliberations about the appropriate um, harvest regulation for that stock. And the, it was actually an international agreement between Canada and the U.S. to develop a formal AHM framework to structure the regulatory decisions for that stock. Um, and we've since done that for pintails and scop as well. Um, I would add that it's as we continue to add these decision frameworks that use AHM um, principles that requires um, a fair amount of work throughout the annual cycle to update those frameworks and then actually inform decisions. And um, it also adds a sort of layer of complexity in, in thinking about how we knit together all those independent strategies that are all tied to overall frameworks driven by Midcontinent, Western Mallard, and um, the multi-stock framework that the Atlantic Flyway is currently using. So things are getting complicated very fast as we add these, add these decision frameworks. Related to that, Scott, we have these other species for which we don't have formal adaptive harvest management frameworks. How would you describe the, the harvest regulation process for them? And are there species there for which we would like to do and we would like to develop an adaptive harvest management framework, but we just don't have the data? I guess I'm just trying to figure out what's the progression of things and what limits our ability to develop AHM for some of these other species for which we might think it would be useful. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it, there's no absolutely is true that um, the development of AHM frameworks require a certain set of elements that, you know, we must have. We need clearly stated objectives. We need regulatory alternatives, a limited set of regulatory alternatives. And then we need the ability to sort of predict how the population is going to respond to regulatory change as well as any environmental changes that might, we might, um, that might drive the, the, um, those dynamics. And so, you know, you, you raise the question, well, what about other stocks that we don't have formal AHM strategies? For example, canvasback is a good one. Um, these strategies we tend to refer to as um, prescribed. Um, they are uh, regulations are determined by a set of thresholds that have been negotiated within the flyways and the flyway councils and the service regulations committee. Um, some would claim that they, you know, that um, the AHM frameworks are um, in a better position to provide guidance in that as much as we're, we're taking into account the internal dynamics and, and really what the optimization procedures that Jim Nichols talked about are, is doing is establishing the biological thresholds that come out when you do 
all of the analyses inherent in that optimization to, to determine what the right regulation is for each combination of population sizes you might you know, encounter in the spring. Um, that's a pretty deep into the weeds response to your question. Um, and, you know, I think you can see that the, the more you want to structure that process, um, the, the information demands and the resources required increase. So, Scott, related to some of these other species that fall within the, the total conventional bag limit, you might say, let's say, uh, blue-winged teal, green-winged teal, widgeon, gadwall, shovelers, ringneck ducks, where you could shoot six, let's say, if we're talking about the Mississippi Flyway, with which I'm most familiar, what would be a trigger that would say, hey, we need to think about a species-specific harvest strategy uh, for, for this one? Is it simply... Is, is it fair to say that one of the key determinants there would be to look at the population status of that bird? And if it if it starts showing some concern, then that provides uh, that provides a trigger for some thought in regard to species specific strategies. Yeah, absolutely. Historically, it's always been sort of the declining abundance status of some stocks that 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 um, creates a flag. And then there's more formal in-depth analyses of the available data that might suggest maybe demographically there's some issues going on that we might want to consider when, um, you know, crafting regulations for that, for those stocks. You know, kind of related to that, Scott, is, um, is debate. I mean, there's, you of all people know there's still debate on some of the uh, the harvest effects on population dynamics. Uh, these vary a little bit among species depending on sort of life history of, of different species. But uh, it's, it's common that people will ask, well, why can't we shoot more of this species uh, where we, our current bag limit is, is one? And bag limit for this other population, this other species is six, but the population of population size of that one is is very close to the other one so uh, it seems maybe i don't know if the answer here is simple or not but what all goes into evaluating and coming up with an answer related to this question of why can't we shoot more of this species than the other and maybe this might relate to some uh, of Maybe it's a philosophical way of thinking about harvest management for the, the different agencies or some of maybe legislatively mandated roles of different agencies. But can you speak to that a little bit? What what goes into um, into the, the question of answering the question of why can't we shoot more of this species? I agree. At, at face value, it might it might seem like a straightforward question. And, uh, you know, as as you've discussed in your previous podcasts, when we address those types of questions, we, you know, we usually have to account for different forms of uncertainty. And in fact, you know, the, the original AHM framework was developed in response to disagreements about which model would be used to answer that very question. So as, as Jim Nichols pointed out, you know, depending upon the, the relationship between harvest mortality and annual survival, um, the answers you get when evaluating harvest strategies based on those two models will, may be very different. And so, you know, the, as a result, we rely on these types of methods that Jim described in your previous podcasts. Um, the AHM framework um, was actually developed in response to, to some of the, these contentious types of um, uh, answers to that question that you posed. I think, you know, one of the most significant outcomes of AHM as we practice it today is it 
is it provides managers an opportunity to disagree about what they think is the most important factor affecting waterfowl. But everyone has sort of agreed to a process to resolve some of those issues and account for that uncertainty while we make the decision. Um, in general, you know, the, the waterfowl harvest managed community relies on what we call a structured decision-making approach to developing answers to those questions. We um, typically rely on the most available information that we have to model the system. We do the best job that we can to be able to, to predict what we think the response is going to be to a particular regulation. And then we derive sustainable harvest policies while accounting for the uncertainty that we care about. Um, I would add that in addition to this technical work, we spend a lot of time trying to develop objectives for harvest management. And so, you know, when someone states that they would like to harvest more from a decision-making standpoint, we kind of need a more specific measurable objective that describes, you know, really what we value from the harvest process. And, and so, you know, the service has trust responsibilities under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So in these deliberations about objectives, we'll typically mandate that a conservation objectives included in these deliberations. Scott, how much of the challenge of expanding harvest opportunities, harvest regulations, more liberalizing regulations, let's, ju let's just say, uh, how much of that is challenged by simply a lack of current data uh, that would be sufficient to, to defend or measure the effect of, of a given proposed regulation or the, the lack of either the lack of the data or the lack of capacity to collect the data. And this kind of gets to a resource availability question. How much of that factors into what can or can't be done with regard to all of these great ideas that sometimes come up with regard to different uh, harvest uh, alternatives? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't have an immediate, you know, answer, but I, I can comment on the, the idea about information and um, resources. And yeah, I, I think as a general rule, um, when we're asked to address questions about fine tuning of regulations, we then have to go back through the available information and make a determination whether or not we can, you know, we can formulate a reliable response or answer to some of those questions. And what we found over time is that as we get finer and finer scaled types of questions, the realized benefit in terms of additional opportunity um, doesn't necess isn't necessarily consistent with the costs of collecting the information required to determine if it is, you know, is possible, as well as the operational costs of maintaining those, those decision frameworks moving forward. So there's a, there's a cost benefit trade-off there, if you will, um, when we have to deliberate on those types of questions. That's not, uh, not unlike some of the comments that we heard from Jim Nichols in the way he spoke about that. And as well as Ken and Dale, even in the early days, whenever we came up with new creative harvest opportunities or harvest ideas, ultimately it came down to, Hey, well, that sounds great, but we need to evaluate those and, uh, and, and yeah, the, the cost benefit aspect of that kind of came through in those conversations as well. So it's, uh, it's good to see that that kind of scientific foundation of, but behind our harvest regulations uh, certainly continues. And if anything, it has, it has strengthened 
through the years. Scott, I think this is going to wrap us up here on the first episode. We have a few more questions that we want to talk with you about. Some that I think our listeners are going to find really interesting related to some sex-specific restrictions. Uh, We're going to talk about the role of harvest management, maybe from a kind of practical application. What's it designed to do? And then we're going to talk about pintails a little bit as well here on the next episode. So uh, if you're willing to come back and join us, uh, Scott, we'd love to have you. That sounds great. A very special thanks to our guest on today's episode, Dr. Scott Boomer, wildlife biologist with the Branch of Assessment and Decision Support for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Division of Migratory Bird Management. We thank him for his time and and joining us here and sharing his expertise. As always, we thank Flay Barrett, our producer, for the great work he does on this podcast. And to you, the listener, we thank you for joining us and we thank you for your support and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.